As has already been mentioned, what a delightful opportunity we have this afternoon to assemble like this, to do so in the peace and quiet of this hour, and to do so with the only expressed purpose, to worship in spirit and in truth, and to lift high and magnificently the name of the God of heaven who has made it possible. For the few moments, perhaps at the outset of the lesson this evening, it might be at least in order to remind each of us that um, under the oversight of our eldership, as well as the work of some of our young men in the congregation, all of the Bible studies as well as the lessons are being taped. And so if at any time that there might be an interest on your part to have a CD version or copy of something that was said or the entirety of a particular lesson or Bible study, just um, ask one of the elders or Jonathan, Adam, they'd be happy to assist you in terms of, of making that available to you. That's a particular capability that we have now have at Pippin. I think we mentioned it some months back, but easy to forget about that since it is still just a little bit on the new side for us. The opportunity for any of that helps us always appreciate, doesn't it, the nature of the Word of God and the central aspect that it maintains in our corporate worship as well as, of course, in our desire to always live in the way that's right. The lesson text that was read just a few moments ago taken from 1 Thessalonians 2.13, takes us back to a rather amazing compliment and commendation to that church in Thessalonica. For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which also effectually worketh in you that believe. Though many things might be said about the congregation in Thessalonica, they certainly had some misunderstandings about the second coming of Christ. They certainly had some misgivings about the timetable of that event. Nonetheless, they were to be highly complimented for they took Paul's preaching and that of his companions as the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. And Paul asserted them that what they had preached was not merely the Word of men, but had been accepted as, in fact, the Word of God. Throughout this study, series of studies on these Bible translations, I think we've each perhaps been reminded of how beautiful the Word of God is and also how tragic it is when it falls into the hands of those who fail to respect it as it ought to have been respected. For that reason, here are some of the things we've seen in the series to this point, not the least of which we did rest beautifully upon the conviction that those original autographs were inspired of God, and just as surely as those men penned them, be they Luke or Mark or John or the others, they in fact wrote exactly what the Holy Spirit superintended them to write. It was completely trustworthy and exactly as God wished it to be written. Over the course of years, however, the need for translation seemed evident, for few and fewer, it seems, were able to speak in those languages and understand them, and thus it was translated into Latin and German and English and Chinese and French and Spanish and so on down the list. And we've learned throughout that that sometimes those translations, in fact, have been tragic. They've really done nothing more than attempt to interpret it, inserting their own pet doctrines, inserting their own pet ideas instead of merely setting forth that which was the Word of God. And along that line, we've looked at just a few of the translations. Here are the major ones. We notice the Good News Bible and the Cotton Patch Bible in our third lesson. Following that, we noted the Living Bible Paraphrase, the New English Bible. 
We also saw the Revised Standard Version, the Amplified Bible, the New International Version, the New American Standard Bible. And tonight, we're going to look at four more. I chose the particular ones that we would consider tonight with the following idea in mind. If you take a look over the last couple of decades at the Bibles that have been the best sellers, that is to say those that have sold the most copies and most versions, once we complete tonight's lesson, with but few exceptions, we have covered them all. I should say we've covered all the bad ones. I've left all the good ones yet to come. And so beginning next week, if my plan holds true, we'll begin to look at those on that list that are commendable, are noteworthy, are in fact recommendable. But tonight, a little bit of unfinished business. The message, the New American Bible, the Contemporary English Version, as well as the Holman Christian Standard Bible. As I mentioned, these again are all on that bestseller list and they, for one reason or another, have enjoyed various degrees of popularity. I think as we study them tonight, a few more concerns, though, should rest on our mind merely than just popularity. Isn't it interesting that just because something is new, that doesn't necessarily make it better. Maybe your father or your parents or maybe our own experience has taught us that sometimes the old paths really are the better. Isn't that exactly what in fact was proclaimed in Jeremiah 6 verse 16? Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Many of these translations that we have considered have been done in the last 10, 15, 20, or even 30 years, and thus they're relatively new. But sadly, there have been problems with all of them we've discussed to this point. And so it is tonight. What about this matter of the message? The message. Here are some thoughts I would ask you to consider about it. First of all, it's interesting to note a few of the introductory thoughts relative to the message. It's a rather popular translation of the Holy Scriptures. It's due to the publishing company known as Nav Press and first set forth in 1993. It's updated rendition only a few years ago now, nine years, 2002. And in it, you can notice the following observation. I thought it worthwhile for all of us to make note of this particular set of features concerning this particular translation known as The Message. It is, in fact, a free paraphrase of the text. It's often very eccentric. Furthermore, there are many unlikely renderings, and as if that isn't bad enough, there are often rather lengthy insertions as well as omissions. I would ask that we take it pretty seriously in regard to that label of free paraphrase. Those translators had in mind to produce a rather free-flowing text and thus they took great liberties to ensure that it had that degree of flowing smoothness. Whatever needed to be omitted, whatever needed to be added in order to give it the appearance that they wished, they felt free to interject or they felt free to omit. As far as some of the things that you and I might note, I didn't put together a lengthy list, but I thought just two might be worthy of our attention. As far as noticing one of its changes, I would ask you to give some thought to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. We are aware that that is a penetrating and powerful passage. As Paul addressed the church in Corinth, 
And as he did so, under the banner of pinpointing to them what some sins are that would keep one out of the kingdom of God. And therefore, things that were in fact to be avoided, eliminated from life, we will remember. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor idolaters. And at that point, the list proceeds onward. Thieves, revilers, drunkards, effeminate, and so on down the list. But as Paul concludes that, he makes careful note, these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You and I appreciate there are some specific and definitive matters listed there because those Greek words have clear-cut meanings that must be appreciated. With that said, consider the way that the message translates that passage. Here's the message's rendition. And allow me to quote, Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining His kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Omissions, to be sure. This particular passage, or the way in which this is rendered there, you might notice has taken out the specifics that God listed. And the part of it that I thought worthy of note especially was, where now is the homosexual matter that Paul originally had in that passage? We know that Paul originally had affirmed that those who were guilty of such sin exactly were forbidden and thus outside of the confines of those able to enter into the kingdom of God. But notice here there has been no reference of any kind or any shape to that kind of sin or in fact any of those other sins that were listed. Paul mentioned drunkard. We don't see that here either. Paul mentioned revilers or idolaters. Those aren't explicitly listed either. In fact, you'll notice that at this point there has been a rendition such that now there really are more questions than anything else. The first question, no doubt, that anyone would be tempted to ask is then, what constitutes abuse? After all, I'm sure from a homosexual standpoint, he's not abusing sex at all. But as you notice, that's the word or the verb that now is present. Isn't it interesting in light of this change that this, in fact, has not been a good thing? Notice perhaps one more example terming in terms of the message. This one, of course, taken from a passage very familiar to each of us. In John the third chapter, verse number 5, in the Lord's rather amazing discussion with Nicodemus, it was he who, of course, the Lord had said, you must be born again. But then two verses later, the Lord made the statement, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except you be born of water and of the Spirit, ye shall not see or enter into the kingdom of God. That is so plain and yet so penetrating. But I would ask that you notice the unusual, and may I repeat, unusual way that the message has rendered that verse. Please read it with me. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. I would ask, what did the particular set of translators have in mind when they hearkened that opening phrase, the wind hovering over the water creation? 
taking this scene back supposedly to the original saga in time of Genesis chapter 1, but notice what has happened. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. At that point, we appreciate this arrangement as it had been created at that point was dark and void. But we remember what came next. The Spirit of God moved over the face of the waters. You'll notice that the word spirit has been changed to wind. I would submit to you that one member of the Godhead has been taken out of the original sentence of creation. That is more than a tragedy. It's a sadness. And what's more, you can see in that these other changes about the invisible moving the visible. One only has to question what thoughts were there because there's nothing in Greek even close to that. Perhaps at this point we can conclude this translation would not be recommended. This thing known as the message I think easily falls in the category of being an unreliable an untrustworthy translation or set of renditions to use in personal Bible study or to use it to recommend to others. The translators were far too loose with regard to the Bible, inserting far too much and taking out far too much and changing far too much. What about another consideration, namely the NAB? The New American Bible. So far we have studied many that seem to have a rather similar name. I would ask that we note this one is different. As you give thought to it, our study of it tonight will be reasonably brief. There doesn't seem to be a great deal that needs to be said because, as you can see, this really is a Catholic Bible translation. It, in fact, was supported by their efforts. It was put out for the express purpose of holding high the matter of Catholicism. You may recall we said at the outset of this series of lessons, one can obtain a Bible of your own choice that teaches whatever doctrine you may prefer. Catholics like the NAB. And here are some reasons why. It is the principal one used for the purpose of for the passages used at Mass, for example. It has all the apocryphal books in it. And, of course, they believe in the canonical character of the apocryphal books, which you and I appreciate they are uninspired, and they do not stand on equal footing with the 66 books of God's Bible. But yet the NAB has them in it. And, in fact, it lifts them up on equal status to all of the other books concluded therein. Many things are perverted in this particular Bible. For instance, the Lord's Supper is one of them. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. We might appreciate that under Catholicism, they have a very unusual view concerning the Lord's Supper. You may appreciate that they believe in the matter of transubstantiation, at least by and large, in which they think that that fruit of the vine and that bread literally, absolutely, entirely, and fully become the blood and body of Jesus the Savior. Not that they're symbolic of it or representative of it in any way, but rather they literally become so. May we comment that those who believe such, and if such were to happen, they actually have become cannibals. But may we comment at this point? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven makes this statement in the NAB. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Now, the Greek text does not state it that way. In fact, the penalty placed in the actual 
passage with which you and I are familiar is they're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. They've changed it to we'll answer for. One will only have to ask, well, what kind of answer might it be? And will it be less of a sentence than that word guilty that is asserted in the original Greek text? That change may seem innocent, but it does reduce in greatness the beautiful character surrounding the matter concerning the Lord's Supper. As if that perhaps weren't enough, you may notice many other things that are in line with Catholic doctrine, like the matter of Peter, is changed dramatically in the NAB so that it supports that idea. Maybe we've said enough to make the conclusion at the bottom. If you would like additional information about the NAB or some of these others, certainly it's easily available. But one would not recommend the NAB. This New American Bible is, in fact, not trustworthy, not reliable, and not one to which one would go to rest and lean one's everlasting position of his or her soul. Beyond the NAB and beyond the message. Another one, and this one certainly has begun to gain a great deal of popularity in recent years. The CEV, the Contemporary English Version. The word contemporary likely gives a strong suggestion as to the character and as to the nature of this Bible. The opening comments, I think, are very worthy of our consideration. It certainly is a desirable quality to have all with access to the Bible and an ability and a capability of easily appreciating and understanding it. But we should understand one must not tamper with the text and change it. The CEV is basically a Bible attempted to be written on an elementary school level. That is to say, at a level in which even someone that has little formal education would still be able to read, to understand, and to rightly appropriate that which is found therein. It really isn't a very old translation, 1995 actually. It is to be noted though that here are some remarks that might be made about it. In an effort to make it that which they thought it ought to be to serve that purpose, they attempted to remove all references to specific gender. In other words, it attempted to be gender neutral. Oddly enough, many of the ones even made since that time have also, of course, attempted to do the same. In addition, of course, several passages needed to be changed in order to endorse or at least encourage that gender neutrality. One passage that seems so easy to consider would be this one. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1, and this passage will actually slip on over onto the next slide. So we'll finish this one and move on to the next one as well. But this reading is a bit on the lengthier side. It is that special passage in which Paul gave instructions relative to the qualifications of elders, those men known as bishops. And amongst those qualifications, here is the way the CEV renders this particular passage. It is true that anyone who desires to be a church official wants to be something worthwhile. That's why officials must have a good reputation and be faithful in marriage. They must be self-controlled, sensible, well-behaved, friendly to strangers, and able to teach. They must not be heavy drinkers or troublemakers. Instead, they must be kind and gentle and not love money. Church officials must be in control of their own families, and they must see that their children are obedient and always respectful. If they don't know how to control their own families, 
How can they look after God's people? The first five verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Of the things listed, there's no question that so much of that does sound familiar. Apt to teach, one who is self-controlled, one, for instance, who controls his own family well. But I would ask that we each note several explicit masculine pronouns or nouns were removed or changed entirely to gender neutrality. The first one was anyone. That would certainly give the opportunity, based on that translation, of a woman being an elder. Because you also notice later it did not say husband of one wife. It said faithful in marriage. A woman can be just as faithful in marriage as a man can. There would be nothing based on that text that would forbid or prohibit a lady from serving as an elder if you please in a church. And yet we appreciate that that goes against the actual text as the Holy Spirit delivered it. There is something, of course, to be said for the gender character of the nouns and the pronouns that are used. Needless to say, this is but one passage. Think about the whole host of verses that do specifically make reference to a gender character. All of them have been changed in the CEV. One could make reference to 1 Timothy 2, the matter of a woman being in subjection to her husband. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, similar passage and similar appreciation. As you think about the nature of those two changes, I would ask that you notice something that is just as troubling. Not only were there changes with regard to, of course, the character of the gender, I would submit that the CEV is just plain incompetent at places. Listen to this passage, taken from Acts 9, verse 22. This was that occasion just after the gentleman at that time known as Saul had come to Ananias or had come to Damascus. Ananias had in fact preached to him and in fact even baptized him. Verse 22 in the CEV reads as follows. Saul preached with such power that he completely confused the Jewish people in Damascus as he tried to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. He confused them. Again, that is a terrible error with regard to translation. The verb is not confused, it's confound. He preached with such logical consistency and such power from Old and New Testament, they were unable to refute his arguments. They were unable to answer in any way the logical analysis and consistency that Paul put forth. And yet the CEV says he confused them. Again, no excuse for such poor translation. As you give thought, though, to these two issues, it seems thus easy again to conclude that the CEV is not, a pa is not a translation we could recommend for ourselves or for anyone else. Be it the message, be it the NAB, be it the CEV, all fail miserably. What about that fourth one? The HCSB, which also some notes beginning near the bottom of this slide. As you can see concerning the HCSB, this one again seems to have gained a fair degree of popularity in terms of at least percentage of Bible sales over the last decade or so. You may be wondering, what does HCSB stand for? It stands for the Holman Christian Standard Bible. H-O-L-M-A-N, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. You'll notice what it was intended to be was this, a fresh English version of the Bible, 
that is now only 10 years old, put forth first in 2001, and again a rendition or revision of it in 2004. In terms of this Holman Bible, we could appreciate there's a publishing company by that name, and that's really where a portion of that name came from. As you can see, the Broadman and Holman Publishing Company is in fact the one that put forth this particular translation, this particular rendition. And it might be interesting to notice that that Holman or Broadman and Holman Company is actually one of the holdings of and intimately affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. Thus, one might not be too surprised that the Southern Baptist Convention has had a great deal of interest in, impact on, and influence in regard to the Holman Christian Standard Bible. As you read it, some of the things that really would be so-called considered Baptist doctrine seem to come through fairly nicely and also seem to come through rather powerfully. There are some omissions to be noted in, the Christian, in this particular Bible. First of all, in one of our earlier studies, specifically the RSV, we noted the tragedy associated with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, where that whole passage, that whole section of that chapter is just omitted. Same thing is true in this Bible. But not only that, notice John chapter 7, verse 53 through John chapter 8, verse 11 is all omitted. That's that scene, at least in part, involving the woman taken in adultery and brought to Jesus, as well as, in fact, the final verse or two of chapter 7. All of it is omitted. It's just not even to be found. What we've said earlier concerning Mark chapter 16 also goes for that. There is substantial autographical evidence that those are genuine texts and they ought not to have been omitted. And yet, this translation has swept them under the rug as if they were no part of the Word of God. Tragedy and indeed shame on them. You'll also notice that this HCSB changes the Word of God. The particular reference I ask that we notice has to do with the entitlement and the very identity of the Son of God, Jesus Himself. Here's, in fact, the explicit way that several different verses are rendered in the HCSB. For instance, in John 3.16, we understand how that, that reads, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's the change that was made. Jesus is referenced as God's one and only Son, not begotten. They took out the word begotten. I wonder why. They completely removed it. I wonder why. Is there some theological importance to it? There is. And thus it is a different matter to say that Christ is merely the one and only Son because what does that say about us? In John 1 verse 12 we're told that those who believe have power to become sons of God. That's all of us. And thus there seems to be open conflict between these particular renditions. All of us are able to become sons of God. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 7. And wasn't it one of Paul's central theses in Romans the 8th chapter that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ? Romans 8, 14 to 16. And thus, to say merely that Jesus is His one and only Son is open conflict, but Christ is the one and only begotten Son. 
that distinction again is very significant. Why did they make the change? What is so troubling about that Greek word monogenes? Because that's what they've removed. May we submit? The Holy Spirit had reason for using it. That change only leads us to the next. They have tremendously altered and tragically changed one of those principal messianic prophecies of the book of Daniel. In Daniel 9 verses 24 to 27, we have one of the most powerful, arguably one of the grandest Old Testament messianic prophecies. Please note with me how the HCSB renders it. After those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. The Messiah will be cut off and then will have nothing. That seems to suggest that His coming thus ends in failure. The labor that He came to engage in and that which He came to cause ends in nothing. That's not what the ancient Hebrew passage reads. And another translation reads that very differently. It speaks to the effect that the offering and the oblation will cease. Why? Because He made it once and for all time. There's never a need for another sacrifice. We don't need to offer lambs and bulls and goats anymore. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Hebrews 10 verses 12 and 13. Here to say that He will have nothing, that is certainly not descriptive of what happened with Christ. When the 62 weeks were finished... And we see the prophecy in Daniel continue on where we recognize the time came His work on earth was completed. He ascended back through the clouds to the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, 14. And thus He received a kingdom. And that it was a kingdom with dominion and majesty and power and glory and might. And so it is that this change again has done a grand disservice to Daniel's final verse in chapter 9. In 2 Samuel 14, 14, another odd change even more than being odd. Look at how it describes God. This was that scene in the life of David when in fact on that occasion there was a woman of Tekoa that was encouraged by Joab to come and speak to David because at that point Absalom, the son whom he greatly cherished, had been banished. Despite the fact Absalom had been so mean to David, David still loved him. Notice how this description reads. For we will certainly die and be like water poured out on the ground, which can't be re recovered. But God would not take away a life. He would devise plans so that the one banished from Him does not remain banished. The change in that passage is indeed a significant one. I have in fact capitalized the part of it that may come to mind. God would not take a life. There were many instances in the Old Testament where God did that. Uzzah lost his life. That's just one among countless others that might be listed. What were these individuals trying to convey? They've changed a passage. It ought to have read, God devises means to recover his banished. But they've changed it to conflict with other, other verses in the Word of God. The Holman Christian Standard Bible though their desire may have been a good one, and though their earnestness may have been a noble one, it would seem again we've reached the conclusion that this would not be a reliable and trustworthy Bible. Far too many things either directly associated with so-called Baptist doctrine or just plain changes to the Word of God seem to have found their way into the HCSB. This lesson tonight has brought us to this particular point. 
as we make one final statement about the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I thought it would be interesting to notice what appears to be just one straightforward change. Amongst the kings listed in the Old Testament is the king named Jehoiachin. And as you can see about him, this particular translation reads, Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, according to verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 36. But interestingly enough, actually the text reads he was 8 years old. Why the change? I really don't know. But as you give some thought to what was manifested in that change as well as those others that we've noted, the unreliability, the untrustworthy nature of that one maybe would lead us to these few comments at the bottom that we'll use to conclude our lesson. Tonight we've extended our listing by looking at four more translations, the Message, the NAB, the CEV, and the HCSB. And in each instance, we found a variety of concerns. In fact, perhaps even worthy to be labeled more than concerns. A variety of problems. These would not be reliable and trustworthy editions, renditions and translations of God's Word. It is, having looked at these, that we've concluded what might be said to be the top sellers on the bad side. We will begin looking at some of the features of those that would be trustworthy and those that would be commendable in one form or another. And if it be the will of God, we'll begin that set of considerations next Lord's Day evening. Tonight, with regard to the Word of God, might we close the lesson as we began it in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. We remember that as Paul complimented their reception of God's Word as in fact that which it was, God's Word, not man's Word. Tonight we can have a reliable translation on which we can have confidence and reliability. If tonight you are outside God's ark of safety, realize that a worthy Bible, a, a, a particular rendition that is reliable, would give us that which is a plain and simple plan of salvation. Not corrupted like John 3, 5 was in that CEV. Not corrupted as removal of Mark 16, 16 as in, for instance, the HCSB. But rather one that tells us that we must hear the nature of the gospel. Hear about the Christ. Hear about the character of sin. Hear about what God did in His love. And then to be prepared to respond by believing it and then to repent of our sins, and then to confess the name of Jesus as a Son of God, and then to be baptized. Upon so doing, we're added to the church, Acts 2.47. And with that addition made, we then have our name enrolled in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 20, verses 11 and following. Tonight, have you attended to that? If you have not, why not tonight? If you have attended to that, and you've tasted the good Word of God, Hebrews 6, verse 4, but you have lost that taste. You've allowed it to be replaced with the old bitter taste of evil due to Satan. Why not purge that bitterness out of your mouth and come back to the sweetness of the Son of God? In fact, His sweetness is only echoed by the character of the great reward awaiting those who are the faithful. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18. Tonight, if you need to come back to your first love, confessing error before others who are aware of it, and letting the observation be known that you intend to change and you are making change, we'd be honored to pray with you and even for you tonight. 
If either of these things would be the need of your life tonight, we would only ask, as would the Lord, that you let that be known. While together we stand and while we sing.